0: Good morning, saints. Great to see all your smiling faces. I trust you have your Bibles open already to Acts chapter 16. We're going to pick up where Vic was reading in verse 16. If you're not there already, you can turn there now. Let's bow our hearts in prayer. Father, we thank you for this sacred appointment during the week when we can gather together at the feet of Jesus, as it were, And hear from our Lord in his word. God, I pray that this morning as we are looking at this account in Acts and seeing the unfolding story of the gospel, your working, your redemptive acts in history as the church is spreading and growing with the preaching of the good news of Jesus, I pray that our hearts would be quickened, that we'd be challenged and convicted, that we'd be confirmed and strengthened in all goodness. We pray all this to the glory of your name. Amen. All right, so you got your Bibles open. Acts chapter 16. It's a large passage and there's a lot in it. So without any further ado, let's get at it. Look at verse 16. It says, as we were going to the place of prayer. Who's the we? Remember from last week? It's Paul, Silas. They've picked up Timothy. And who else have they picked up? Luke, that's right. The man who, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, is writing this account. That's why you have this pronoun, as we were going to the place of prayer. So it tells us that they were going to the place of prayer. Now, where was the place of prayer in Philippi? Do you remember? There was no synagogue. There was not the critical mass of Jews required in order to start a synagogue. And so they would meet by the riverside to pray. So the missions team make their way back to the riverside in Philippi in Macedonia. And here they're going to encounter a slave girl. Before we get into this, I just want you to note the place of prominence that women play in the unfolding story in acts. Last week we saw the conversion of Lydia and how her household became a launching pad for the gospel into the European continent. How Paul thanked her in his letter to the Philippian church for their partnership in the gospel from the first day until now how critically important she was in the unfolding purposes of God and the gospel. That was Lydia last week. This week, the story centers on this unnamed slave girl. Well, from the text, we know at least two things about this slave girl. Do you see them there? It says we were met by a slave girl who had a spirit of divination. That's the first thing. The second thing we know about her is that she brought her owners much gain through her fortune-telling. So these two facts that we know about this unnamed slave girl in Philippi, both involve oppression. She was oppressed, enslaved, possessed. I'm not exactly sure what adjective or word you wish to use. By an evil spirit, one of divination. We also know from this account that she was oppressed, enslaved, owned by people who capitalized on this evil spirit that had possessed her. I'm going to talk about the first one, the enslavement to the spirit of divination, in a moment. But before we do, I want to talk about this second one, because perhaps you today can identify with the latter. Maybe you feel like you are oppressed by your job. You feel like you are trapped in a job. You are enslaved by the grind and trying to make your mortgage payment. You look at your vocation and your career and you'd say, man, it just feels like a whole pile of slavery. Not only slavery to others and other people who are capitalizing on my labor, but also slavery to my own dreams and hopes and ambitions and slavery to the North American dream. Well, before you get too far down that road and that pity party, I want to body check it. You see, the extent to which you feel oppressed by your work is determined by how much you have bought into the cultural narrative of social Marxism. We live in a time where there is this rise in Marxist values. In fact, they've been so deeply propagated by the public school system over the course of many decades that the framework of Marxism has become the lens through which we default see the world, unless we're really careful and intentional. Hands up if you know what I mean by cultural Marxism. Let me just see. Okay, a few. So, I mean, this is a whole lecture for another day, but let me just give you a simple framework. Cultural Marxism looks out over the world and sees everyone in one of two categories, either oppressed or oppressor. Now, this view of cultural Marxism, it has become so ubiquitous that we fall into those categories unawares too often. It's like um, the wallpaper in the house where you've lived for 20 years. You're so surrounded by it that you stop even noticing it, right? That's That's what it's like. It's like a fish who has absolutely no concept of what is water because they're surrounded by it. This narrative of oppressor and oppressed as the chief way to look out over the world, this cultural marxism, it's it's become so deeply indoctrinated and ingrained in our culture. it is the zeitgeist. And it's a worldly narrative that needs to be displaced with the truth. It's even crept into many churches, and it's taken the form and the shape of what Paul would call in Galatians another gospel that's no gospel at all. In fact, it's accursed. Here we see the slave girl. And she is legitimately oppressed. We're told that. She's called the slave girl. We're told that she is owned. We are told that her labor is then, results in capital and assets that go to her owners. That's enslavement. That's oppression. But if you have a job in Canada today, that's not what you and I experience. And yet there is something in this for us to glean. I want us to spend a few minutes thinking about the work that we all do. This is really important, not only because as Christians we need to displace this false narrative of cultural Marxism where we see everything in terms of oppressed and oppressor, but it's also true because a particular view of work is right at the foundation of everything we believe in the gospel. Let let me tell you what I mean. Unregenerate people, people who have never been saved, people who have never been born again, they live out of a narrative where they are working constantly for others, where they are working constantly for money, where they are their own only source of provision. They are constantly working because they are chasing dreams, they are working for themselves, and they are working trying to save themselves. That's how unregenerate people view work. They they are relentlessly trying to fill a desire that can never be satisfied, no matter how hard they work. And so for the unregenerate person, they live out of a story and a narrative of work that says, man, you just have to keep striving, and you have to keep striving, and it's like a dangling carrot. It's like a a six-and-a-half-mile-an-hour treadmill. You never get there. But for the Christian man or woman, God in Christ has already given you everything you ever need. And so what that does for you and for me is that it sets us free from this oppressive view of work. We have a better story around work. In fact, for a Christian man or woman, work is a good gift from God. Work itself is good. In fact, you see this in your own life in moments where perhaps you've been without meaningful work. If you've ever been unemployed or woefully underemployed, you know that the absence of work is not a good thing meaningful work is a good gift from god i remember when i uh, graduated from my master of divinity degree and i was applying to different churches to become a pastor you know the the trajectory of my career up to that point in business had always been like straight up you know everything i touched turned to gold and then out of obedience, I quit the corporate world and I, and I went to pursue a vocation in ministry. I did my MDiv. I felt like God was pretty lucky to have a guy like me. And I found myself over the course of a year and a half unemployed. In fact, I spent that year and a half working at chapters and milling aluminum for my dad. And I had this emptiness, this sense of like, my goodness, what's going on here? Like, I've tried to be obedient and serve the Lord, and my career is just completely tanked as a result. I was different degrees of unemployed and woefully underemployed, and it actually was a real challenge. It was horrible. Now, in retrospect, I can see that God used that season in my life to shape and form my character, but that's not the point. The point is that work itself is a good thing. It's a gift from God. And the absence of work is painful. It's one of the ways that we actually map and navigate meaning in our lives to find the biggest rock we can lift and carry it. Work is good. It's not oppressive. Work is good in the first place because when you work, you are rewarded with a sense of accomplishment. Work is also good because it gives you an opportunity to explore your potential, your God-given gifts. You see, work is not oppressive. It's a good gift from God. Work is good in the third place because unrelenting leisure and pleasure turns to ash in your mouth. You know what I mean by that. It's nice after a long day of work to go home, kick up your feet, and watch the Leafs game, especially if they win. But how horrible do you feel if you spend an entire weekend just binging Netflix? You see, leisure is only meaningful if you have meaningful work, and so work is not oppressive, work is good. So you're, you're thinking, okay, RD, I got it work is good, work is a gift from God, it's not inherently oppressive, then if work is a good gift from God, why does it so often feel like a grind? I'm glad you asked. It's because of the fallout of the fall. It's because of the curse that came upon Adam in the garden when Adam and Eve failed to trust in the goodness of God and in the goodness of his word. Do you remember what God said to Adam? Genesis chapter 3. God says to Adam, Cursed is the ground because of you. In pain shall you eat of it all the days of your life. Thorns and thistles it shall bring forth for you. And you shall eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your face you shall eat bread. You see, work, even after the fall, remains a good gift from God, but the dynamics have changed. The ground is now cursed. Think about that from from the perspective of an agrarian culture. It means that before the fall, your good God-given work meant that if you put in a pound of effort, you got in a pound of result back. But now because of the fall, cursed is the ground with thorns and thistles by the sweat of your brow you're going to eat. It means that work itself is still a good thing, but now you're going to put in a pound of effort and only get a penny of result back. It's going to be a grind. Work is a good gift from God, even though now because of the fallen state of our world, it can feel like a grind. doesn't make it bad. It just means that it's been infected by sin. And so this work that um, is God's good gift, that then becomes corrupted, still remains a good gift from God. Not a Marxist oppression, but a good gift from God. You don't believe me? Fast forward to Exodus chapter 20 where God gives the law to Moses. And one of the commandments that God gives to Moses gives this balance of work and rest. Six days shall you labor and do all your work. But the seventh day is the Sabbath of the Lord your God. In six days the Lord God made the heavens and the earth and all that is in them, and on the seventh he rested. Therefore the Lord blessed the Sabbath and made it holy. I don't know exactly where the idea of a five-day work week came from, but it didn't come from the Bible. In the Bible, God says, six days shall thou labor and do all that thou hast to do. Work, even after the fall, remains a good thing, held in balance with a day of rest. Here's how this takes shape in the life of the believer. Remember, what we, are, what we are driving at here, when we see the slave girl, her second form of oppression is that she is owned as a slave and she is oppressed by her slave owners. And what I want you to see is that that's not the case for you, no matter what the world tries to tell you in categories of cultural Marxism. As a Christian, your work is a good gift from God. Here's how it takes shape. As a Christian man or woman, it is no longer that you have to work, you get to work. You get to work with all the stakes having been removed. You get to work and labor, enjoy creation, creating things, enjoy achieving things, enjoy the struggle, without all the weight and consequences on the other side. Because God in Jesus Christ is your provision, he is your provider, and he solved your biggest issue. You no longer need to work to try to make it to heaven. You get to work to enjoy it. This is true not only of your day-to-day job, it's also true of the Christian life. Too many Christians approach their Christian life saying, well, God in Jesus has done everything necessary, and therefore I don't have to exercise any discipline, any resilience. You know what I mean? I got my ticket to heaven and I'm good. Watch as those people flounder in their Christian walk. God in Jesus Christ has taken care of everything for you, and now you get to point your life towards godliness. You get to exercise your muscles of discipline and resilience and watch as by God's grace, the spirit that empowers you will form and shape you and conform you into the very image of Christ. You get to work. Paul is going to later on write in his letter to the Thessalonian church. And he's going to tell them something really, really shocking. He's going to tell them, if you don't work, you don't eat. You didn't think that was in your Bible, did you? You see, there is this rise in this narrative all around us that any form of work is actually contributing to the oppression of the laborer. That any time you labor or work, you are enslaved. But the consistent witness of Scripture is no. Work is going to be difficult ever since Genesis 3, but it remains a good gift from God. And so we live out of this better story as Christians. Thank God for the meaningful work that he has set before you. Find joy in it. Now let's get back to the slave girl's other oppression, okay? This slave girl, in verse 16, we are told is not only oppressed by her slave owners, but she's oppressed by a spirit of divination. It's how she made her living, by fortune-telling. Verse 17, she followed Paul and the missions team around, and she was crying out, these men are the servants of the Most High God, who proclaim to you the way of salvation. Verse 18, Paul has had enough. (laughs) I chuckle when I read this part. You know, you would think that Paul would, um, in the name of Jesus, cast out this spirit of divination out of love and compassion for this young slave girl. But he doesn't. He casts it out because he's annoyed. <laughs> and so, you, again, already in Scripture, you see that even good things can come from less than awesome motives. Verse 18, Paul addresses the Spirit. He commands it to come out in Jesus' name, and it comes out in that very hour. Folks, let's press into this for a moment. Because not only in our world are we surrounded by this ubiquitous message of cultural Marxism, telling you that you are oppressed and there are oppressors and that's all that work is, baloney. That's one thing that's on the rise, and we need to fight against it as Christians. Reclaim work as a good gift from God. The second thing that is apparently on the rise all around us is the practice of New Age spirituality. Occultism. Fortune-telling. Tarot cards, Ouija boards. People who hold seances to access dead ancestors, people who visit mediums to try to tell the future and try to know their fortunes. Let me be really clear at the onset of this part of our discussion. Those practices are not innocuous, they're not fun, they're not games, they are satanic. Christian men and women should have nothing To do with them. Those will bring you nothing but slavery and true oppression. You know, I I believe this so wholeheartedly that God in his mercy has actually prevented me from ever having watched a horror movie. They say, well, that's that seems silly, R.D., well, is it? I don't avoid watching horror movies because I'm some sort of a shrinking violet who's afraid of things. I don't watch them because I believe that satanic things, demonic things, evil, occult, dark things really exist. And I'm not going to sit there for two hours being, air quotes, entertained by Satanism. Well, maybe... You would this morning say, okay, RD, that's fine, but I visited a medium a while ago and they told me things that they could have never known, things that were accurate and true. Or maybe you'd say, well, RD, I was visited by a deceased family member and I found it very comforting. Or you'd say, well, I, I had a Ouija board or a tarot card session and it showed me something that turned out to be very accurate and true. Or maybe you took a trip on psilocybic mushrooms and discovered something that was profound and actually very meaningful and comforting. Look, in this account of the slave girl, you are going to see that sometimes things of the new age and the occult are charlatans and scammers. But sometimes they are actually accurate and true. Because they're real. So what do we make of those things as Christians? Well, here's the point. As Christians, we don't try to navigate understanding those things by merely looking to our experiences. Instead, we look to the Scriptures. In 2 Corinthians chapter 11, Paul tells the Christians in Corinth that Satan will often disguise himself as a messenger or angel of light. What does that mean? It means that if you are dabbling in things and you had your late grandma come visit you, that wasn't your grandma that you came to, that came to see you no matter how comforting or how reassuring it was. That was Satan coming to you as a messenger and angel of light because he's coming to deceive you and and using something that is apparently alluring to try to bring you over that's what scripture would say look just because it wasn't scary or just because it was comforting doesn't mean that it was good and from god this this account here we see this spirit of divination that is enslaving this slave girl cries out repeatedly over the course of many days things that are accurate and true. Look at it. These are are things that this spirit cries out that are not only accurate and true, they would by outward appearance appear to even be God-honoring. Verse 17. These men are servants of the Most High God. True or untrue? True. These men bring the message of salvation. True or untrue? True. And yet this was an oppressive spirit. A satanic spirit. A spirit of divination. So just because something is comforting or accurate or true does not justify it for the Christian man or woman. It can still be a demonic spirit. There is this rise in our popular culture and interest in the New Age. Sort of tagging along with that is a rise in interest both in terms of um, spirituality but also in terms of therapy in psychedelic drugs. Have you guys been paying attention to this? What's a Christian to make of that? Well, I think any good theology starts in creation. Okay, so we, so we go back to creation. And in the creation account, we're told that everything that God created is good. He declared everything to be good. And so, as a Christian man or woman, now, now just please remain seated. Don't throw anything at me. Let me finish. Mushrooms that grow in the ground are good and not inherently evil in themselves, okay? Mushrooms that grow in the ground are good, they're not inherently evil. But just because the mushroom that grows in the ground is good and not inherently evil, declared so by God, does not mean that every use of that mushroom is good, Okay, let's take another approach at that. Psychedelic drugs, psilocybic mushrooms. If everything that God created on the earth is declared good, including mushrooms, not every use of everything that God has created is good. What does that mean? Well, I think it means for something like a psilocybic mushroom that there may be therapeutic uses that are actually good. There may be. I don't know. But it means that Christian men or women should look at the recreational use of those psilocybic mushrooms to get high, to explore reality, to do whatever, and say that is not good. In fact, it's especially forbidden for Christians. And here's the link between psilocybic mushrooms and demonic spirits. Galatians chapter 5, verse 19 to 21. Paul here is contrasting the works of the spirit and the works of the flesh. Verse 19, he says, now the works of the flesh are evident, sexual immorality, impurity, sensuality, verse 20, idolatry, sorcery, enmity, strife, jealousy, fits of anger, rivalries, dissensions, divisions, envy, drunkenness, orgies, and the other things like this. I warn you as I warned you before, those who do such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. Oh, wait a second. There were no psilocybic mushrooms in that list, R.D. Well, there kind of was, but it was just hidden. You see, in verse 20, one of the things that Paul describes as a work of the flesh, a thing that has to be avoided by Christian men if they want to enter the kingdom of God, is translated into English as sorcery. But the literal Greek word for sorcery in this passage is pharmakia. From which we get our word, pharmaceutical. Drugs. Here's the point. Christian men and women should have nothing to do with sorcery. And that includes the use, recreationally, of mind-altering drugs. What you see on drugs may be real. Not just something between your ears. You might be seeing a different plane of reality. But the point from scripture is that dabbling with it is sorcery and you shouldn't do it. This spirit of divination that oppressed this young slave girl was real and it spoke things that were true. But Paul identified it as the spirit of Satan. Its truth, its accuracy, and even its apparent encouragement of his ministry did nothing to vindicate it in the eyes of Paul. It's like, no, no, that's actually demonic. It needs to be cast out in Jesus' name. That's what happened in verse 16. Okay, verse 19. So the slave girl... Um, She's been saved, she's been delivered, she no longer has this spirit of divination, and so she's of no use to her owners anymore. Now look, perhaps you can relate to this. Sometimes when people are rescued by the Lord Jesus Christ, when they're saved, when they're born again, when they're gloriously set free, they're confronted with the fact that the way that they used to make money is so interwoven with sin that they can no longer participate in that thing anymore. Talking to a man recently. Saved, born again. God radically saved him from a life of sin. Like, don't want to go into details. (laughs) I'm just trying to tell you the story. Um, He found himself, though, as now as a Christian man looking at all the ways that he knew how to make money and navigate his way through life. And he's like, I can't do any of them anymore. I don't know any way to make money except through these illegal, sinful means. And it was a hard thing, but as his pastor, I said to him, well, it looks like you're like the slave girl and going to have to trust God. Or maybe you've been following your TikTok feed lately and you've seen that Kat Von D got saved you know who that is? She's a famous tattoo artist. She was someone who had given herself over to the occult. And yet God radically saved her in Jesus Christ. She was recently baptized. I was crying while I was sitting there watching it on TikTok. And Kat Von D had made her entire life through this, like, Both the appearance and the reality of the practice of dark arts. And she publicly burned all of her occult books. Because now she was a new creation in Christ. She'd been saved, she'd been set free. She could not make money by those means anymore. And I pray that God would bless her and provide for her. So that's what happens to this slave girl. She's set free from demonic oppression. She's now lost her livelihood and her utility to her owners. Good news for her, bad news for the owners. So verses 20 to 24, these owners come with trumped-up charges against Paul and Silas. Paul and Silas are dragged out in the street. They're stripped naked. They're beaten, and they're thrown in prison. think we too easily read over passages like that. So there they are. Verse 24. Stripped naked, publicly beaten, thrown into prison, not only prison, but maximum security, inner shackles of the prison, inner, inner sanctums of the prison with shackles on their feet. So here's a literary thing that's kind of interesting for you guys that love the Bible. Um, there's a parallel here that's curious. The slave girl is set free from imprisonment, and Paul and Silas are imprisoned. How are they going to respond? What are they going to do? Well, look at verses 25 to 34. In verse 25, you find Paul and Silas sitting in prison, grumbling and complaining, questioning God. How could God do this to me? I'm such a good guy. I did all the right. Is that what happened? No. Paul and Silas, about midnight, were praying, singing hymns to God. And the prisoners were listening to them. Man, I love coming to church on Sunday morning. One of the reasons I love coming is to see all of you. There's something in particular. When I'm standing here, and I hear you all singing to the glory of Jesus, there's something about corporate worship that encourages the soul. I sing in the shower, I sing in the car, to my family's chagrin, I sing and whistle around the house, you know? And that encourages my soul a little bit. But when, as your pastor, I know the things that are besetting you, the, the challenges that have befallen you, the struggles that you're walking through, and I hear you singing to the glory of Jesus, it encourages my soul, it recalibrates me. Such is the strength of public corporate worship. Well, that's what Paul and Silas are doing. They're in prison. And they have an abide worship night. <laughs> Verse 25. We're told that this is a witness to the other prisoners. Now, now look, um, this is something that you can tuck away and remember in your next season of hardship. Other people are watching you. You have family, you have friends, you have co-workers. And they're watching to see how you are going to respond when hardship falls upon you. And so Christian man or woman, don't waste that moment. But redeem it by singing aloud to the Lord Jesus Christ. By showing the other prisoners that God alone in Jesus is trustworthy and worthy of all praise. He alone is worthy to open the scrolls. When you do that, it's not only good for all those that are watching, all the other prisoners, but it's good for your own soul. Verse 26 to 28, there's an earthquake. Um, In that earthquake, the chains and the shackles fall off, the doors come flying open, and you and I can't help but think of Charles Wesley's song, and can it be? Because that's the picture. We're told that the jailer sees what's happened. He resolves to take his own life rather than place his life in the hands of the judges because he knows that the consequence for allowing a prisoner to go free when that prisoner was to have been executed is that you as the jailer would be executed in their place. And Paul pipes up and he's like, whoa, 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 hold on a second, don't do it. The doors have flung open. The shackles have fallen off. But we didn't run away. We're still here. Hold on to that for a moment. Okay, we're going to cycle back and pick that up. Verses 29 to 30, the jailer falls down before them. Verse 30, he asks them this question. Man, Monty and I were driving home last night, and on the highway just north of Barrie, I actually saw a billboard that said this. It was wonderful. What must I do to be saved? You got to put yourself in the in the Philippian jailer's sandals here. He's looking at Paul and Silas. The doors have flung open, the shackles have fallen off of them. He must be thinking, the Lord God has saved you. Can he save me too? They answer, verse 31. Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ. And you will be saved. You and your household. Verse 32. So they spoke the word to him. And to his entire household. George, this was the first growth group. Verse 33 to 34. So the jailer takes them and he washes their wounds. And then they take the jailer and they baptize him. Look, here's another parallelism. Friends, I love this stuff in Scripture. He washes Paul and Silas. Paul and Silas wash him in baptism. Verse 34 tells us, That he brought them up into his house and set food before them, and they rejoiced, along with his entire household, that he had believed in God. Look, um, the whole sermon series in this, suffice it to say, men, husbands, fathers, claim your rightful dominion over your home and over your family with bold statements of faith. As for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. Verses 35 to 40. So the magistrates then send word to release Paul and Silas. They have come to realize that these false charges against them aren't going to stick, and they just want to sweep it under the rug. Verse 37 to 38, Paul says, no, he says, you can't do that. He says, we're Roman citizens. You could not legally strip us naked and flog us the way that you did. He says, you beat us and imprisoned us publicly. You can't release us in secret. Our vindication must be as public as our humiliation. Why would Paul insist on that? Well, this is really important. See, Paul here appeals to his Roman citizenship and his rights as a Roman citizen so that Many people in the city will see not only his vindication, but the vindication of the gospel. And to that end, Paul clings to his rights and defends his rights and fights for his rights as a Roman citizen, to be a gospel witness. Now, look, if you've been paying attention over the last several years here in Canada and the West in general, This is a moment that Christian men and women are trying to navigate. Christians ask the question, should I fight for my civil rights? Should I appeal to my rights? And then you read a passage like this, and it's like red meat to so many of us, right? You read a passage like this, and you see the answer is yes. Christians need to exercise their God-given rights for the purpose of the gospel. Sometimes. Okay? That's the point. Here, Paul exercises his rights for the purpose of the gospel. But earlier, Paul and Silas expressly did not appeal to their civil rights as Roman citizens instead they endured an unjust illegal public flogging persecution and beating they were imprisoned illegally and they never appealed to their Roman citizenship interesting isn't it the, the chains fell off them in the prison and they didn't exercise their right to freedom and run up and, and run away An appeal to their rights at any moment would have delivered them from this imprisonment. And yet they gave up their rights. Why? So that the jailer and his household would be saved. The Lord God freed them from chains, yet they remained in prison. The Lord God gave them rights as Roman citizens, yet they didn't take up that claim. And it resulted in the saving of the jailer's life from suicide and the jailer's soul from hell. Because Paul and Silas believed that those things were more important than their rights. So here's the point. I've been struck recently that there are Many things that are applications of the gospel of Jesus Christ that are universally, objectively true, no matter what the circumstance or situation. There are a lot of those. But there are also truths and implications of the gospel that need to be applied differently depending on the circumstance at hand. It was only a couple weeks ago that we saw Paul circumcise Timothy and not Titus. Here we see a moment where Paul does not appeal to his citizenship and his rights. And then we see a moment when he does. And, and how do you make sense of that as a Christian person? Well, you've got to look for what is the driving force behind this. I think Paul's decisions and applications were driven by one thing. What will serve the gospel of Jesus? And in that circumstance a while ago with Timothy, the saving of Jewish souls was worth more than Timothy's foreskin. The saving of the Philippian jailer and his household was worth more than Paul and Silas' citizenry right to freedom. And yet, when the time was right, proclaiming the gospel demanded not circumcising Titus. And in this situation, the gospel was best served by not letting the magistrate sweep the injustice under the rug. Look, there are implications of the gospel that are universally objectively true. And those are easy to apply. But the other issues demand wisdom and discernment in application. you and I will navigate those ones by always asking the question, how is the gospel of Jesus best served? In this moment. So Paul and Silas don't appeal to their citizenship for the sake of the gospel, for the saving of the jailer, and then they do appeal to their rights as citizens that the whole city will hear the gospel. Both are true. Okay, we close with verses 39 to 40. So they came and apologized to them. The magistrates came and they publicly apologized. And they took them out and asked them to leave the city. They're um, forced to sheepishly come, hat in hand, and apologize to these two guys. And they're like, yeah, it'd be best if you could just kind of skirt out of here now. You know, it's been embarrassing enough. Sorry for stripping you publicly. Sorry for beating the daylights out of you. Sorry for imprisoning you. Now can you just leave? So they left the prison. The jailer and his household were saved and baptized. And where did they go? Verse 40. They went back to the house of Lydia. When they were at Lydia's house, they encouraged the brothers. And then they made their way on to the next destination. Let's pray. Father, again, we thank you for your word. Your word that is living, active, sharp. Thank you for the love for your word that you've given to us here at St. George's. I ask God that these truths from Scripture would find a deep place in our hearts and shape our lives and our affections and our actions in such a way that other people would come to us with the question of the Philippian jailer, what must I do to be saved? And that we would be granted the boldness, the courage, to bear witness and say, believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved, you and your whole family. Jesus, be glorified, we pray.